Hello everyone, my name is Rosie Mead and I'd like to welcome you to the second series of the Muscle Podcast. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Emma Dolan, today. Emma is a lecturer in Peace and Development Studies at the University of Limerick. And prior to joining UL, she held a teaching fellowship at the University of Aberdeen. Emma, thanks very much for agreeing to participate in the Muscle series of interviews and I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, in the first part of the interview, I want to focus on Emma's book, um, Gender and Political Apology, When the Patriarchal State Says Sorry. And that book was published by Routledge in 2022. Later on, then, I hope that we're going to have an opportunity to chat about some of Emma's other research, particularly around the theme of war, commemorations and representations of, of military personnel. Anyway, Emma, before we get into the substance of your book, um, it would be great if you could tell us about your, your own academic and disciplinary interests. Um, from reading your work and looking at your bio online, I can see that you're informed by scholarship from feminist work in international relations and what's called critical military studies, which I hadn't actually heard of before and wasn't familiar with it at all, okay? So maybe you could tell us about those research fields. And, and I'd be really interested to hear what kind of issues they're grappling with. And what would be their points of departure from maybe more mainstream approaches to international relations and military studies and, and how they in turn have informed your own research interests? Sure. Well, thank you. Firstly, um, it's a pleasure to be here, Rosie. And thank you very much for having me. Um, and yeah, so so, yeah, broadly speaking, you're absolutely right. Uh, I come from so I'm very much squarely in international relations uh, field and have always been. <laughs> That's kind of my disciplinary home. But in particular, um, I've been working with feminist international relations for for years, and that is kind of my primary, um, I guess, inspiration. But also more recently, and you know, it's it's interesting that you say you haven't heard of critical military studies. It's a very recent uh, kind of subfield um, that was kind of started maybe about uh, roughly 10 years ago now, um, and it's actually kind of interdisciplinary. So whilst it is kind of looking at international relations, um, there's also lots of sociology in there. There's lots of um, kind of history and other fields which are which are talking uh, to, to um, military studies and IR. Um, and I suppose what I think is uh, particularly uh, inspirational about feminist international relations and potentially critical military studies is this idea of pushing the boundaries of what international relations can think about and talk about and research, right? International relations is um, in some ways kind of a, a, a bit of a dinosaur of a discipline. It moves uh, quite slowly in some ways. Um, and so kind of new discussions about, you know, talking beyond like the state as an actor, for instance, um, is is something that IR is is kind of dealing with and changing with. And I think feminist IR has been at the forefront of that. So feminist IR has been um, increasingly pushing the boundaries of what international relations can can see as politics. What is international politics? So um, to take like Cynthia and Lowe's um, kind of initial question of where are the women, it's to is to not just think about how politics is enacted by um, by kind of statesmen. <laughs> but also about paying attention to, for instance, diplomatic wives, uh, about paying attention to um, women workers, about paying attention to, um, you know, uh, prostitutes who work around military bases and that kind of thing. Not just um, looking at uh, gender as something that, you know, uh, we have to understand statesmen as being men, but also looking for um, per perhaps less visible 
um, gendered subjects in international relations. Um, so I think the other thing that I'd say about this is that international relations is constantly being pushed to think about not just what is considered ultimately to be rational behavior. So there's this, this kind of mainstream assumption, traditional assumption in international relations that states act in ultimately rational ways, which is kind of material for material gain, right? And that's kind of in the story of war, um, for instance. And uh, ultimately what I think feminist international relations is, is doing and what critical military studies is doing is saying that often these actions aren't necessarily rational and we really limit our understandings of international politics if we think that way, right? So there can be like things which on the face of it seem irrational, but we end up thinking are not so much about material um, conditions and much more about, for instance, identity, right? States can have identities and act in particular ways for that reason. And um, so I think, you know, that's kind of pushing the boundaries of international relations in a basic way. It's, it's, it's challenging a basic assumption of international relations. But also things like bringing in the politics of emotion, right? Like bringing in the politics of of embodiment and what that means to international relations. Like IR has only really been embracing these topics quite recently, sadly, um, even though war is literally an embodied experience. So um, thinking, you know, bringing in people like um, Lauren Berlant's work, like Sarah Ahmed's work into international relations has been, you know, feminist IR has been doing that. And so I've benefited from this hugely, not just because this is a really exciting way to view international politics, but also because when I've been working on um, political apologies, you often struggle to understand political apologies through these kind of very traditional IR <laughs> ways, right? Like if you don't understand them as emotional, as effective, then you you miss a huge uh, amount of what they're doing. Um, so I think that I would I've benefited massively from this understanding of how um, for for my understanding of how apologies work. Also in terms of methods as well, and that's something maybe we can talk about later, is that critical military studies in particular, feminist IR, they've been um, bringing in much more ethnographic methods, they've been bringing on in much more, uh, you know, ways of seeing politics, which kind of implicates us as researchers too. And um, this is something we know, uh, you know, feminists have long argued that it, it's a fiction to argue that we are just kind of... Um, you know, uh, entirely separate from our what we research. Um, so the kind of seeming neutrality of of these political spaces is being challenged all the time. And so uh, that that's also something that I've really benefited from. Great. That's such a such a rich and fascinating account. And and I can see the threads as you explain it. I can see those threads within the work of yours that I've read because I can see that kind of consideration and kind of sophistication of your analysis in relation to emotions and effect, um, and also maybe the kind of willingness to embrace different kinds of methodological prose. For example, your interest in discourse is, is kind of obviously really, really strong in this book. Um, so I think that some of what you've described, we're going to kind of bounce around back to those ideas over the course of our discussion. Um, but actually focusing on your book. And so congratulations on the publication. I And I hope you've had a really good reception to the book, because I must say, I, I really found it fascinating. And it certainly pushed my thinking in ways that I, I hadn't really gone before. Um, but the book itself is centered on this idea of political apology. And I suppose in Ireland, we're probably broadly familiar with the idea of state apologies. Um, for example, the Taoiseach's statement on mother and baby homes that was issued in 2021 would come to mind. Also, the UK PM David Cameron's 2010 apology for the Bloody Sunday Massacre. And I suppose in chapter one, you try to put that 
in context, because you talk about how the period since the 1990s has been characterized as the age of, impo- of a, the age of apology in inverted commas. Um, and that idea of the age of apology reflects the kind of growing frequency and prominence of, of political apologies internationally. I'd like you to talk us through that idea of the age of apology. I suppose the kind of questions that spring to mind are, who's been doing the apologizing and what kinds of wrongs are they apologizing for? And also, I think, how have we come to this? And what kind of factors and forces have contributed to the the normalization of apology? Um, To the extent, and I'm I'm kind of saying this without cynicism, but maybe a certain amount of cynicism may be built in there, to the extent that it's almost now seen as a kind of a hallmark of the maturity of a democracy to be able and willing to apologize for, for historic wrongs. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good question because I think the idea of um, that we have been living in or maybe con- are continuing to live in an age of, of apology is itself up for debate. And maybe some, well, it's up for debate maybe because some people will say, is it even particularly happening? And other people might say it doesn't matter, right? Um, and so I think that, so what I will say is this idea of the age of apologies being used all the time in the literature, like this is not something um, that I'm necessarily suggesting. This this literature has been around um, for a good couple of decades now, kind of, you know, toying with this idea of the age of apology and trying to understand what it means. Um, I think what we can say, like, I think probably it's quite hard to deny that there has been an increase in the kinds of apologies we, we're seeing in the 1990s and onwards. They're the kinds of apologies in which, um, you know, heads of heads of state, heads of government are, you know, in parliament, in official spaces. They are kind of, um, they're, they're, they're uh, performing something which is, you know, a pre-written, um, you know, kind of very carefully worded statement. I think this is, to some extent, always happened, but it's, in particular, you might have had much, you know, broader examples of people apologizing, public figures ap- apologizing for like personal uh, kind of misdemeanors or um, something that they've personally engaged with. But what we kind of see that's slightly different from the 1990s onwards is this kind of retrospective apology, right? Is this kind of what they often call in the literature intergenerational. It's this idea of um, we as the current um, kind of government or state, depending on the context, uh, have the kind of role and it is correct <laughs> to apologise for something that we might not have been alive to have seen, to have witnessed, right? Um, so I think there is something specific in that. And there's something kind of ontologically specific too, right? Like even the idea that this is um, something states can do, that states can be sorry, um, is is somewhat uh, kind of novel, I think, from the 1990s onwards. Um, and I, then I suppose you can take the other question, which is that why does it matter, right? States will often make these kind of rhetorical addresses. Why does it matter if it takes the form of an apology? Um, and I think uh, it does matter. Well, obviously, I think it matters, right? But like, I think that one of the things that makes apology really interesting is because it seems so banal. Um, it seems like something very consensual, right? It seems like something um, basically, you know, as you you know, you're asking what are the kind of forces behind this? I mean, I think we can't understand this without understanding kind of liberal internationalism, um, ideas around liberal democracy, right? Are that there are certain norms. These norms are, of, for instance, human rights, justice, 
and that states and uh, kind of good democratic states should demonstrate their uh, performance of uh, commitment to these norms. Um, so I think we can't, like, that is undoubtedly the context. That's why you have, um, you know, denouncements around, for instance, um, Turkey being illiberal for not apologizing around the Armenian genocide, right? You have this idea of, like, not being fully committed to a liberal international agenda. Um, and in some ways, these things are really hard to disagree with. <laughs> I mean, they are hard to disagree with. And I think if you ask, and there is research to show this, if you ask most people in the world, most people in the world will agree that victims should get some kind of justice through apology and other means. Um, many people feel that even kind of uh, material reparations don't mean as much if they don't come with a kind of symbolic apology. And um, so I think, you know, um, most people would agree with that. If I do something wrong, I think um, there is a kind of general moral idea that I should apologize. So in some ways, it's kind of banal. <laughs> um, it's kind of, um, it's kind of, yeah, consensual politics. But in other ways, um, even the apologies themselves, and I sure will come to this, uh, can 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 be really problematic in in what they and how they 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 discuss the past, right? Um, so yeah, so whilst you, the apology is about embracing transparency, right? D democracies are supposed to be transparent. They're supposed to say they're not supposed to deny what happened in the past, and so you can kind of perform um, this this kind of um, democratic politics by by engaging with the kind of politics of apology but at the same time you know this is not a perfect system and I, I would argue by their nature apologies always obscure something else so I think um there's always this kind of idea um of or there we should always challenge the apology um and they tend to be challenged <laughs> um so to look at like some examples you 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 came to there you know for instance um Cameron's apology in 2010 for Bloody Sunday is one of these examples, right? It's really ambivalent because in some ways it was this massive moment of relief, right? For for many people who have been campaigning, families, people who campaign have been campaigning for this, um, that there was some kind of end to this. Um, but at the same time, since that time, we see the UK government continuing to advocate for amnesty for British soldiers involved. So, yeah, I think it's not, uh, it's not, Whilst it tries, apology tries to be this this ultimate um, expression of transparency in human rights and democracy. Um, it, I, I would almost suggest it can't meet that that uh, goal. That's so interesting because I think sometimes I think I think the when I was reading a book, I was I was kind of really struck by the kind of the scale and the kind of range of like apologies sort of internationally. Because um, I think sometimes in Ireland we can get kind of locked into a sort of Irish exceptionalism and it's like this is the only country that has to look back at its past and sort of say like what went wrong and who was wronged and what are the kind of injustices. But actually, for example, Canada, as you kind of mentioned in the book, has kind of had kind of a series of of, of kind of apologies even in recent recent years. So the extent to which it can sort of, it, it seemed to be necessary, it's become normalised. But I think that question you ask about can it really draw that line in the sand that it's seeking to draw? That, I think, is, is very much an open question. And that kind of really does run through your, through your work very substantively. I suppose, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I'd like to hear more about this. And when I was reading the book, I, I was really struck by just the, the sheer complexity of political apologies. Like, there, there's so much going on within them. Because... Um, on the one hand, they're very staged to manage events and they're very sort of like prescribed kind of statements. 
But at the same time, they need to convey sincerity. I mean, so there is this sense of something that's highly produced, but also needs to be sincere. Um, there's a sense that they actually do have to say sorry for wrongs. But on the other hand, maybe limit the liability of the state because you don't want any kind of to be opening any doors around other kind of claims that might be made. Um, they need to strike emotional chords. And, and you make reference to um, kind of a fascinating image of, of Willie Brandt falling to his knees at the, at the Warsaw Ghetto. And I, I went back and I actually looked at that image and it is really, it's really kind of powerful and really kind of grabs you emotionally. Um, but at the same time, the statement of apologies is typically like parsed by, by legal and diplomatic experts for any kind of errors or mistakes or anything that might cause offence. So, and as you mentioned, there's also this kind of intergenerational aspect, this kind of temporal inconsistency whereby the people who are apologising aren't necessarily the ones who, who did the thing that has to be apologised for. Um, so I think that there's so much going on there. And I think for that reason, I think I'd really like to hear you talk about like what is a good apology supposed to consist of? Like, what are the sort of hallmarks of a good apology, kind of based on the kind of liberal tradition or kind of liberal understanding, which I think we're critical of, but let's let's hear what that's about first and foremost. And what are they supposed to achieve? And, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the importance of drama, staging and emotion, you know, in terms of... So I'll come back to that when you've had a chance to talk about that first element. Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah, there's absolutely, there's quite a lot of work, uh, which which what it does is it kind of, um, a lot of it is it, it creates a kind of typology, right, of what, um, what, what people can do, what states, what governments can do to, to um, satisfy the needs of particular victim groups through apology, for instance, right? Um, and I mean, I mean, there's lots of work which genuinely provides typologies. Um, and I think, like you're right, we do need to be um, a bit critical of of this, precisely because apologies can often be intercultural, right? <laughs> and um, there are examples of, for instance, um, you know, a, a state apology which gets mistranslated in order to kind of appease the other side, right? There are these examples of, you know, how um, translation can just like affect how apology uh, is understood. Um, so there's cultures, you know, cultural aspects which. Um, uh, obviously, or, and kind of backgrounds and assumptions about apology and how apology should work, which interfere with with these this kind of typology type uh, analysis of of apologies. But at the same time, um, you know, apologies, as you say, they, like this is what makes me continuously think that apologies strike are almost they can't ever deliver what politicians want them to deliver, but they they try to. They're supposed to be sincere, but they also weren't alive at the time. If they come across as, um, for instance, I'm thinking of um, Justin Trudeau, right? He was criticised by by lots of people, um, including kind of on the left and right, for his what some called uh, an apology tour, right? Where he's kind of apologising to different groups. And um, in some of those apologies, he, he did cry, right? And that was seen as, um, I guess maybe some people saw it as sincere, but a lot of people thought it was very insincere. But in some ways, what he was doing was following the exact rule book, right? He was, um, he was showing that he he what well, he was trying to show that he cared about the issue, right? I guess, um, and you know, one of the problems I find with with this this question of sincerity is like it's ultimately a dead end in some ways because we don't we will never know what's in some politician's mind when they're apologizing. I don't think it's worth um, trying to find out. But they have to, as you say. 
uh, appear sincere, right? So it's 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 tricky because um, they have to appear sincere, but not um, cry too much to look uh, kind of ultimately insincere. Um, you know, other things that uh, that are important to apology are, for instance, like apologies can be can be symbolically meaningful, but you know, most scholars would suggest that they should you know be attached to some kind of material compensation, right? That um, you know. You can apologize um, lots and lots of times to indigenous communities, but if you're not like access, if you're not allowing access to land rights, for instance, then this can be, you know, appear as very hollow. Um, material compensation can be in the form of reparations or other other things. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the good or ideal apology, I think there are specific. So, uh, the other thing about the rhetoric itself is that um, many emphasize the need to kind of recognize the kind of humanity of victims right so to try to um you know not apologize in an ultimately narcissistic way which i think the us does and will probably come to that right um it's not all apologies can often be narcissistic but apologies have to at least try to engage with victims on some level and show some kind of recognition um usually um i think or at least I would suggest that apologies have this tendency to uh, disconnect the harm itself from the structure. So, you know, you can have like an apology for a colonial harm, but if you're not talking about it in the context of colonialism, I'm not sure that it really rings true. But as you say, the, the problem is then other victims of colonialism come forward. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's um, probably the morally ideal apology is not one that can be kind of legally met by the state, um, you know, unless they're willing to, for instance, pay a form of reparations which might actually bankrupt them right uh, in some cases if we're talking about like you know slavery uh, if we're talking about these massive um kind of uh wrongdoings then they the kind of reparations that would be involved in that are just uh astronomical so it's kind of it's difficult to <laughs> to reach that Yeah, I think that that's so interesting that there's kind of maybe a sense that if you're sort of doing it right, you're doing it wrong. Because if you're following the rule book, then the sort of this kind of element of emotion and effect is sort of being kind of submerged by the kind of drama and staging staging of it. And I, I felt that theme of emotion was was really quite strong in terms of like how the kind of unpredictability of the kind of emotion of those who apologize, but but also maybe of, of victims and of the people who received the apology. And, and I thought that was kind of a really, really interesting tension in, in what you're describing. I suppose that kind of maybe brings us to the, um, like, I suppose there's kind of different conceptions of, of apology. And we've been kind of referencing this sort of liberal idea of it. Um, and, I suppose within that idea, as we've said, it's that apologies kind of show us the willingness and the ability of the state to correct itself and to recognize the needs and wrongs of those who have been wronged. Okay. Against that, like there are more skeptical readings um, and they might see apologies as attempts by the state or other political actors to or even celebrities, maybe, to kind of restore their own legitimacy. So in the context of some kind of moral, military, diplomatic, social crisis, this is done to sort of like 
shore up their sort of status and, res- and their respect within the kind of broader society. I mean, that's, you know. So there are kind of two kind of, I think there are kind of the dominant readings within the kind of discourse about apology from what you've said. But I suppose what, what interests me is that you, you take your critical analysis in very different and very interesting directions. Um, and you very much sort of like locate this idea of apology as speech, okay? And speech in a kind of a, a kind of a more varied way than we would normally maybe even understand that, that speech by, by kind of in multiple ways it's speech. And you talk about a speech as performative and as excitable. And also you argued that political apology is gendered, that there are kind of gendered kind of roles and ways of seeing gender that are kind of like stitched into the kind of very fabric of apologies. And in your book, you're, you're particularly interested in the apologies that have been given in the, for a sexualized military violence. So that's the kind of theme that runs through the kind of two cases. We're going to talk about them later, but I think that's kind of a... So you're, you're addressing kind of patriarchal aspects by this particular kind of focus. And in drawing your analysis together, you, you pull from like theorists like Judith Butler and other feminist scholars... And I think there's just so much, so much is interesting in, in that, what I've just kind of summarized about your work. So it would be really great if you could maybe explain why and how you understand apologies as performative and excitable forms of speech, how you understand this idea of gendering and gendered nature, and what do those concepts mean in that in this particular context? And where that analysis then you pull together, where that allows you to go in terms of the kind of problems and issues you're exploring in the context of your book. Sure. Um, yeah, so I do take a really linguistic approach in that work. Um, like, not to say that, I mean, I think you're like, we have to always consider all the kind of dramaturgical, almost and visual right, aspects of, of apology, and I suppose. Um, I try to do that, um, but I ultimately do it through, in some ways, like a kind of post-structuralist reading of speech um, and kind of speech acts uh, in that sense. So, yeah. Um, So, okay, I'll take performative first because I feel like um, it's kind of the, um, it was kind of the starting point for me, theoretically. And it's funny now that you see so much... um, you see it being used all the time now, performative, like on social media, etc. And it's 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 funny you mentioned kind of like almost even celebrity apologies because I I've noticed that, um, you know, it, and I think like following Me Too, we saw a really big uptick in like um these kind of apologies by, um, by people who are who are you know, uh, who were seemingly in the wrong um for various various things. There are a lot of kind of social media based apologies. And I often see the term performative being used um, in ways that, like, just literally is, isn't what it, what Judith Butler meant, right? Like, people are using performative to mean, uh, what they mean is non-performative, <laughs> I think, right? Like, they mean um, that what the speech is doing is not doing anything. What they mean is someone is just saying something for saying it, right? When performative, um, in, the, in Judith Butler's sense, and also, like, even kind of further back from that, if we're talking about Austin, it, it means that speaking does something. It means that um, speech acts uh, quite in that kind of, you know, almost literal sense. So, um, you know, performative in that sense allowed me to, well, it allowed me to do two things, right? One is to 
look at gender not just as um, something uh, we are, but as something that we are um, continually reinscribing upon ourselves and our and the world around us, like every single day and every time, in you know, in in very minute ways, uh, a lot of the time. But also to see something about what apologies do, which is that apologies are trying to provide justice, right? But they're trying to prov- provide kind of verbal, um, kind of symbolic justice in some form that is not necessarily, you know, you can have an apology which doesn't result in compensation or something material that doesn't result in anything in particular for those who receive it. So I, but what amazed me was that you see the speech act, right, of apology. And even when the apology on the face of it seems almost farcical, then you see this kind of rippling of effects because people, as soon as the speech exists, people take up the speech and use it in different ways. They use it back on the speaker. And that's what um, Butler's um, kind of idea of excitable speech allowed me to do because in some ways my reading of Judith Butler was kind of uh, not what they intended, right? It was not, um, Judith Butler is using excitable speech at the time to talk about hate speech. I was using excitable speech in a completely you know, different context and perhaps wrongly, <laughs> but the point was to say that um, I was dissatisfied with exactly that, that, um, that binary that you, that you mentioned earlier, which is that apologies are either transformative liberal utterances of justice or they're kind of strategic and manipulative, right? And I think they're both those things and I think they are also uh, not always acting in the way that the speaker intends. So excitable speech allowed me to, um, to start to suggest that um, we have to stop assuming that the state achieves what the state wants through apology whether that is um, to legitimately provide justice or whether it's to just like get some kind of strategic um, gain from that. Um, and yeah, and so Judith Butler allows me to do that because for post-structuralist thinkers like Judith Butler, um, speech is something, um, discourse itself acts, right? It, it can also act uh, in ways unintended by the speaker. So um, so I thought that was like, in some ways captures one of the the pitfalls I feel like of apology, which is that, I feel like statesmen, statespeople, whatever, politicians, celebrities, they often have this promise that they, they can kind of like close the book when they apologize, right? They can say, um, I'm going to summarize it in this way and then it's over. Um, and it's never over um, because it just doesn't work that way. As soon as they say it, then people start um, using their words back to them to demand a different apology or to say that they were insincere or to make or, or to literally mock them, right? Um, so that's kind of, what excitable speech uh, helped me to do. Uh, in terms of gender, like I think the gender part is the kind of performative part. It's about, um, you know, in some ways, how does, how is apology just this, a different version of, of um, you know, uh, mostly uh, male politicians doing male politician stuff, right? How are they reperforming gender roles by apologizing, especially based on the fact that there is some linguistic research that shows that, you know, apology is a gendered, kind of speech act in the sense that you know generally uh or at least in many contexts women tend to apologize more than men for instance um that we kind of probably have this idea um kind of colloquially um so does it make states does it make statesmen look weak if they apologize um and i think like there's probably no correct answer to that but i wanted to kind of take that up and see how this kind of um in some ways quite emotional statement um, can also be strategic, can also uh, be, uh, and then also be used against people. Um, 
And then in terms of gender, like the other aspect of gender um, that runs through this is to, to think about how uh, the campaigns for apology and the apologies themselves reinscribe gender roles, like how um, particularly following um, kind of conflict related to sexual violence, how does, uh, when gender is kind of, it's at the centre of this, do the apologies avoid the gender or do they highlight the gendered aspect of this? And I think they do in different ways, right? Great. I, I, I think as well, I, I really like your explanation there of, of, of the kind of performative that it does something. And I'm actually kind of tickled by the sort of reference to the kind of overuse of the concept performativity in every domain of life at this point. So that it really has become, maybe I've fallen a bit guilty of that myself, actually. I'm going to have a bit of a crisis of conscience around it. But, but it, is, it, is, it is certainly like this idea that, that the apology does, does things. And, it, it, and even when it tries to shut things down, that it's unpredictable. And this is what the excitable dimension that you're, you're referring to is. Um, I suppose before we, we get into the, the two case studies that you elaborate in the book, um, I think that it's, it's really important to talk about victims. And I suppose what they gain or what they lose through processes of political apology. And again, that's that's hard to say definitively, I think, but you know, let's at least explore the sort of possibilities. And I suppose before we get into that, maybe, though, I thought it was interesting that you sort of suggest in the book that a concern with the centrality of victims in relation to is, is actually quite a recent thing. Do you know, what I mean? you know like they, that they weren't necessarily foregrounded, you know, in previous processes of apologies and even even as recently maybe as World War Two, actually. So, we're, you know, so and I thought that was really fascinating. And that, I suppose, prompts the question, um, first of all, is that correct? Am I right about that? Have I read that correctly in your book? But also then, where did this recognition of the victim, where has that come from? And what has kind of inspired it? Um, because it, it really has a, a strong currency and valence now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, oh, before talking about that, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've also used performative wrong <laughs> in recent years. It's the way it's uh, been kind of reimagined um but yeah so I totally understand that um yeah I think um when it comes to all the liberal international ideas around apology they can't like, we have to also see this in in line with a move towards transitional justice right we have to see this um it's not to say that I don't think that apologies and transitional justice are are kind of happening at the same time or in the same ways but I think they're they come from from the same kind of basic place, which is, uh, as you say, the idea of um, of really kind of platforming the needs of victims in kind of post-violence, post-conflict uh, situations. And whilst it does feel like that's always been the case, um, it, it certainly hasn't. And, you know, like if we, as you mentioned, if we look back onto um, the kind of the the World War II tribunals, um, most of this, the kind of speaking done at these tribunals was was done by perpetrators, right? There wasn't much space for victims to um to kind of make public testimony. Um, this is something that's happening um more recently than that, um, in line with um, you know, maybe we can associate this with like what are considered to be more complex conflicts, right? Which are more potentially more um uh, ethnic, more uh, kind of embedded within societies, this kind of idea. Um, I don't think we can track everything back to like one specific thing, but I think um, certainly this, this 
platforming of victims and what victims need um, has has come alongside um, other processes of, of, for instance, transitional justice. And this is obviously um, like I don't think anyone would, would argue that that's a, a on the face of it a bad thing. That is, of course, a really important thing. Um, it shouldn't be the case that post conflict, um, post violence, we don't speak to victims. <laughs> um, of course, we should. Um, but some of the issues come alongside, and there's lots of literature to show the ambivalence of this, right? Like the ways in which victims then um, may be platformed in ways they don't feel in control of, um, may be, may feel, you, you know, in particular when it comes to gender, there's definitely like quite a lot of research to show that uh, women are, are, are feel more pressure to accept, for instance, um, compensation or reparations or some kind of uh, whatever is being offered to them, right, post-conflict. Um, so there is there are gendered aspects to this and then you know even more particularly if we're talking about sexual violence you know if we're talking about um, you know the idea that victims should also testify um, if we're talking about crimes of of sexual violence this might have very um, re-traumatizing effects and again lots of literature and transitional justice to show this so in some ways yeah the victim has become a kind of symbol of of society and I think some have argued probably quite rightly that um in some ways you need an idea of victims you need an you need a representative you need you need to 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 feel that there are like at least descendants of people who are still living with consequences that we can kind of apologize to who can kind of receive this um this symbolic kind of reparation so the victim is kind of at the center of this um and but at the same time, you know, some would argue that the victims kind of ultimately play a kind of a sad role in this, in this uh, kind of this as, this um, apology politics, because ultimately what apologies are doing to some extent is they're renegotiating the past, right? That this society is kind of coming to terms with the past and maybe ultimately it's whilst the victim has to be there, victims have to be there and be visible. They're not necessarily um, really, it might be more about society coping with its own um past more so than kind of truly satisfying the needs of survivors and um i think you see this you know um you see this in lots of cases but i mean sarah ahmed i, I remember writing about um uh you know the uh, kind of apologies towards indigenous communities ultimately reperforming this idea of like um western uh kind of white um savior complex right like this kind of idea of I don't think they use those terms but that kind of um you know we shouldn't feel bad or we should feel good ultimately because we felt bad and so it can be much more uh kind of about the society the kind of majority society than the minority or the victims themselves but at the same time you know obviously <laughs> victims feel um there tends to be you know some material compensation will be rejected by victim groups based on the fact that it's not, they don't feel fully recognized. And so, you know, there has to be some kind of conversation about how victims can be meaningfully included in this, as you say, kind of scripted and rehearsed, um, perhaps a statement um, or how they can be, you know, adequately consulted. That's, that's, that's really, really interesting. And I suppose I'm thinking perhaps even about like the category of victims as to as to who falls within it, and and you might want to maybe talk a little bit about this too. And I think that that isn't even itself a kind of a, a, a straightforward designator because 
One interesting aspect of that is the kind of intergenerational aspect. So who speaks for the victims now? Do you know, you know like, and, and think, for example, there are proposals to sort of apologize and to pardon men who were convicted of the crime of having sex with other men. Do you know, like the kind of criminalization of homosexuality? And, and even thinking about that now, who would be, who would be apologized to? Do you know, you know, like who, you know, and how, how are those victims of that specific set of oppressions and injustices? How can they respond, you know, maybe at 100 years remove or 50 years remove or whatever it is? So there's all kinds of categories. But I think as well, a theme that really comes through very strongly within the within the work. And again, it comes through in the context of the case studies, and we'll, we'll hold the details maybe for another while. But this kind of way that how apologies can divide victims up between the good ones and the bad ones, the deserving and the undeserving, legitimate and the illegitimate. And I suppose I think that's probably kind of a a problem and a kind of an analytical point that I think is quite important in your work as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the the, the issue with um, talking around um, the ideas of victims of harm, political harm, um, is that um, is that it's never like processes of apology are always delineating. They are they're boundary making practices, right? They're they're constantly delineating what what is harm in this context, what is you know okay, and who who needs to be recognised. And in one sense, um, you're right. Like you know the there can often be kind of a leaving out of particular uh, of particular groups. I mean, I'm thinking like, I think it was in Canada, there was like one apology towards Indigenous communities, which which left out a few uh, groups. And then a second one had to be made to include those few groups. So, I mean, there's this constant like where, I mean, I presume that the, and I don't know kind of in depth about that, but I presume that that, that decision was made for particular reasons. And I know um you know, at the time and then was expanded because it was controversial. And, you know, so, yeah, I think, you know, the problem with apologies is they they don't, they can't be fully transformative in the sense that they can't rewrite the discourse on victimhood. They, they, they are constantly um, kind of citing and replicating um, uh, societal understandings of which are always uh, imperfect. So, yeah, um, when it comes to our descendants of victims as worthy for as recipients of apology as as direct victims um you know what happens when you're genuinely talking about people who who are genuinely dead and cannot um respond um and you see yeah it, you see this all the time um you know i think it's part of the you know some scholars like i'm thinking of trudeau here he calls apologies abortive rituals right he calls them he thinks that they literally they they can't work because of all of these complexities and like ontological complexities. Um, so yeah, I, I think what I don't think there is, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced there is a way of apologizing about something which exists in our political world, which doesn't reinscribe boundaries of um of victimhood. And as you say, legitimate, illegitimate, whatever, um, however we want we want to call it. And even the most inclusive apologies. There will always be uh, some people who are made invisible by those apologies. Um, 
So I just think it's part of the mechanism um, because we don't have perfect understandings of any violence because if we did, we'd be in an equal society. <laughs> um, we're still um, we're still muddling through uh, lots of gendered, racialized, classed, everything else um, uh, kind of you know um, complexities, and you know there's just not going to be a perfect way of managing those. So, so yeah, I think. It's really tricky. It's really tricky because um, I, I completely understand the 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 need for apology, um, but I also think I would warn that um, there. You know, I think probably the best thing is to be as inclusive as possible in terms of the campaign too, right? Like, if you are campaigning against an organization and you think that that there are people with a similar um, uh, kind of campaign to you I think it's always better to unite uh, in your demands than to split up because you think that you might be more likely to receive something that way because what you're going to receive is always going to be um, partial anyway um, but I know maybe we will talk more about that in a second yeah, and I think it's like one 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 example that sort of strikes me from from the Irish context. It's not exactly the same, and, and I'm just kind of like thinking aloud now, and I'm, I'm probably not even being correct what I'm saying. But it's in relation to the kind of the whole the the kind of children in, in mother and baby homes and the kind of treatment. How that some of the um, activists who've experienced that kind of abuse and violence in the context of Protestant homes have felt misrecognized and kind of unrecognized in comparison to the kind of the dominant discourse and the dominant analysis, which kind of very much centers on those who pass through Catholic homes. And I think that's quite an interesting thing and in how the kind of the kind of reckoning has not been the same in terms of the kind of, you know, in terms of addressing the kind of abuse and the experiences of isolation, marginalization, which they would also have gone through. So I think it it, it does play that kind of breaking up of victims can 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 happen in all sorts of ways and sorts of contexts. Um at the center of your book are two fascinating case studies, and they they are really, really interesting in terms of showing the kind of real world and the kind of empirical implications of of the of the ideas we've been talking about. Um, the case studies focus on the Japanese government's apologies for the treatment and sexual abuse of Korean comfort women during World War Two, and the second on what um, focuses on what became quite infamous images of the sexualized abuse of prisoners by U.S. military in Abu Ghraib prison during the occupation of Iraq. I think around 2004, the images would have been released. And we're going to discuss each of those two case studies in, in, in detail in a while. But I was wondering a little bit about, to go behind the scenes of your research a little bit, um, I suppose... There are key time differences in the timing of the abuses in question, their geographical location, perceptions of the victims. So ostensibly, they're, they're quite different from each other. So I'm really interested to know what led you to focus on these two case studies in particular, um, as opposed to others? And how did you actually go about researching um, and developing your, your analysis and case studies? Yeah, um, well, to be honest, um, the decision... That, that's, that was made there was in some ways quite practical, right? Like as as we all do with research. Um, so, you know, I started uh, on my PhD with with basically an interest in, in introducing uh, on a broad scale gender to this work on public apology or political apology because uh, whilst there've been a couple of pieces, there hadn't been um, a kind of sustained analysis of what gender's doing there. Um, I had like 
background of researching uh you know the the, the comfort woman case because that's something um what well, I've been kind of interested in that case since well, I did my year abroad in Japan and I I had had worked a bit on that in even in my undergrad and and my masters and stuff like that so I was kind of interested in this case and it in some ways is a uh it's kind of it might be the case that most people think about when they think about um you know uh state apologies for this kind of wide scale gender violence um and then actually kind of coincidentally my first year was you know the the latest japanese apology um was in 2015 it was my first year of my phd and you know that blew things up and and allowed a whole new um i guess set of of data and understandings of what was going on there although there had been uh, apologies um previous to that um and yeah, so the cases are, they are different. Uh, and Abu Ghraib, I, I landed on in a more roundabout way through feminist IR and lot, there's lots and lots of feminist IR work done on Abu Ghraib. I mean, lots of it, but none of it had any, had paid any real attention to to the apologies precisely for the reason, I guess, I've already mentioned, which is that the apologies were just deemed to be like, essentially just like cynical um, and they are pretty cynical, right? But like, um, but they, I don't think there was a, an understanding that apology in particular was doing any work there. And I, you know, I wanted to take gender in a broad sense. I didn't want to um, introduce like just gender in the sense of, uh, of woman <laughs> and apology. I wanted it to be, um, you know, about gender-based violence. I wanted it to be about masculinity as well. And um, this, obviously, the the harms committed at Abu Ghraib were, were at least visibly against uh, male detainees. This allowed kind of uh, um, me to do a bit of, uh, you know, work around what happens when gender roles are reversed, right? And like, how does a discourse change? But yes, they are different case studies. Um, and in some ways, I think many people, myself included, didn't expect them to speak to each other as much as they actually did in the end. Um, uh, but, you know, also because during your PhD, you're kind of, you're trying to convince people that what you're saying means something, especially like I'm trying to convince people in IR that even apology matters. Never mind that gender has something to say about this, right? So it made sense to focus on kind of case studies about war and militarism because these are well, well, well embedded in international relations. And if I could try and say something about, um, I thought that at least if I could connect to militarization, if I could connect to um, the politics of violence, it would allow, um, you know, you know, a better understanding um, in that sense. So, so yes, the cases are different and like they are really different. And I don't think I'm trying to really compare like for like in that sense. But at the same time, I didn't want to include cases which weren't really related to militarism and war because I think, for instance, um, you know, the mo mother and baby homes, the Madeleine laundries, th th this is something, you know, this is large scale gender-based violence essentially. But it, I was, you know, I really wanted to focus on how militarism works through gender there because I thought it would be the most complementary despite the difference. And I think, you know, because I only have two cases and I, I spent, you know, they're quite in-depth case studies that allowed me to um, draw out more of those potential complexities and actually look at, you know, what happens when the, when, you know, one is historical, one is much more contemporary, like what happens um, when, when the discourses are trying to do those, you know, trying to do those different forms of work I suppose um I don't know if that really answers your question 
Oh, it absolutely does answer my question. And, and just to say, having read the book, I think you've done a great job of convincing me <laughs> about that apologies matter and that, you know, and this, that this sort of looking at them in the context of kind of militarization and war actually does bring out something that's really rich and really interesting. And I thought that the, the differences between those apologies does show us gender and how gender works in different ways you know that that, that you know and 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 I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the specific lesson but I think it absolutely does so it, it's it's really interesting and it's really interesting that you were in Japan at the time of that apology as well I mean that must have been sort of quite a kind of prophetic and kind of a, a interesting moment for you as well um so I suppose the in relation to the the comfort women um so I suppose some I'm guessing that some people may be familiar with 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 this idea of of the comfort women. So, but I think that many many listeners won't or will have a kind of a peripheral involvement, um, um, f- a peripheral kind of knowledge about it. So, I suppose it would be really interesting to give us a little bit of the context there. It's it's referring back to um, how women were abused, kind of systematically abused. Um, via the military at a time of World War II, which is also a kind of where there's a colonial relationship between um, um, Korea, or sorry, Japan and Korea. Um, and that is also the kind of dynamic that plays out within it. And so I think it would be really useful to maybe like e- explain that to us, but also the term comfort women itself is, is obviously problematic, but nonetheless, it's it makes sense for you to use it in the context of what you're talking about here and you and you talk about the kind of like the kind of issues that are bound up in that usage so so maybe you could just fill us in with the, some of those elements particularly for 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 the listeners who who won't be familiar yeah absolutely um yeah so as you say um the comfort women in some ways are they're kind of the um they they almost like sadly kind of typify um korea's kind of um experience of colonization by japan in, in lots of ways like i you know um there are lots of of abuses that that happened alongside japanese colonialism right but um in some ways there's been more of a focus on the comfort woman than most of the other uh i'd argue at least a lot of the other abuses um you know and i think there are lots of lots of reasons for that but yeah essentially um one thing to to say is that um, comfort women existed from from other places, right? There there aren't only Korean comfort women. Um, they just it it tends to be the case that historians uh, you know suggest that the vast majority of comfort women um, came from Korea. Um, you know estimates go from twenty thousand to five hundred thousand. Um, you know, and I'm not a historian, so uh, that's not really um, my focus, but. Yes, essentially, the 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 idea was that prior to and then during the Second World War, um, the Japanese Imperial Army kind of mobilized women from various parts of the Japanese Empire and and kind of stationed them in what they call comfort stations to be used uh, by um, uh, by Japanese soldiers, essentially. Um, so you know there is it was a, a highly organized system. Um, obviously extremely exploitative system there I think so it's part of the controversy around the comfort women and I think it, it's in the name right it, like the term comfort women um, is is a translation of the Japanese it is um, obviously euphemistic 
um, for what is is needs to be understood as as systematized gender based violence, right? But um, the one of the problems that has been that um, the contestation of precisely that of precisely the uh, the understanding of comfort women not as as prostitutes, right, but as sex slaves has been, um, you know, in some ways been a necessary one because of the discourse, but it's also been one that's that's sidelined some victims. Um, and so we have this real quagmire where some people are, you know, if some people argue that if you suggest um, that there wasn't something which is can only be understood as sexual slavery, which is literally about, you know, dragging young girls often away from their families um, and taking them to 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 brothels. Um, and if you understand it in any more of a complex way, but for instance, if you understand some of those people who 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 were involved in setting up comfort stations as being Korean middlemen, then you take away from the the violence of the the events themselves. And um, I think that's a mistaken way to view it because you know colonization colonialism gender based violence all of these um systemic issues they are complex in how they manifest and i don't think that people who for instance signed a work contract in which um there was some allusion to prostitution should not be understood as as being victims of this right like i think um you know uh I, I don't think that um so I think that the, the issue around the comfort woman is also one that we're still having right around sex work today it's in some ways like you know to what extent can we understand sex workers as being as being raped right we we should be able to understand this right and so we should be able to understand um comfort women as being either made sex slaves and or as as deceived through false promises of work and all sorts of other um, versions of, of events because I don't think there was one experience. Um, but yes, essentially this idea of sexual violence, which is, of course, um, it's something probably people will have heard, right? It's, it was done to, to, um, to maintain the Japanese um, military's kind of fighting spirits. It's, it's based on this idea that men have to um, engage in this kind of... Um, sexual violence alongside war, which is, of course, something that we know is false. That's, that's, that's a really useful contextualization. And, and I suppose one thing else that you make clear in the book is that it isn't only Japan that has engaged in this practice, so that there have been, I mean, the US and the Philippines, for example, and there's other kinds of, uh, kind of instances as well. Um, and I suppose what you sort of draw out in the context of, of your of your book is that this apology was there was an apology that was issued in 2015 a kind of a kind of a culmination of apology if you want to maybe call it that um but that there had been kind of individual efforts um by this you know individual kind of apologies by specific japanese states people at various intervals along the way and kind of expressions of remorse but not with the same kind of force of this 2015 apology so i think like more of your attention is focused on, focused on that one but that, and I suppose that, um, and I think it's it's how you discuss that that apology is it's really generative in terms of kind of illustrating the limits and possibilities of apology as a route to justice. So, so even if you're not interested specifically in what happened in Korea, or, you know, you know that nonetheless, this is an extremely rich discussion. Um, and I suppose, would you mind maybe tell, talking us through how the apology to the comfort women? was received by both the victims and the South Korean state, because there there's a separation, there's differences there, I suppose. 
And earlier on, we talked a little bit about how patriarchal ideologies can be reinforced, how victims can be divided, and certain kinds of suffering can be recognized while others are ignored. That, that, that these are the kind of risks and pitfalls within the apology process. And, and my sense is that they, they were born out in this context. So maybe can you talk us through that? Um, how those tendencies were reflected in the case of the comfort, apology to the comfort women and who and maybe what was missed by that apology? Sure, yeah. And you're right. There, there are, are lots of apologies that Japan has kind of broadly um, in various contexts delivered to South Korea prior to 2015, many of which are based on which are explicitly addressing the comfort woman. Some are addressing broader kind of imperial harms, but or colonial harms. But um, the 2015 statement is particularly interesting because it is the first and only time in which um, Japan and South Korea uh, essentially performed this apology together. Right? You you have um, a representative of each state standing on the same stage, um, each stating, uh, you know what they're going to do for the other um and and the language of this apology um says that the issue is closed finally and irreversibly and they shake hands right like over over this uh apology so um it is it's such a fascinating case because there have been so many previous apologies south korea had never no successive south korean governments had never entertained the idea that japan was in any way sincere uh, throughout the past, right? Um, rightly or wrongly, I mean, I think probably right, rightly. Um, and in this context, it was just like, even now thinking about it, I'm not 100% sure why they why they embraced this apology at this time. It still doesn't um, fully make sense to me. <laughs> um, and why did they embrace it to the, to the extent of, um, you know, sending their Minister for Foreign Affairs onto a stage um, to to shake hands um it's fascinating and like yes there was it's also it, it's it's a kind of almost case in point in how controversial and how apologies fail right because uh it was quite controversial for japan to apologize in some ways right because there are revisionists in japan they tend to they tend to suffer backlash whenever someone um you know um tries to apologize in some way even though the rhetoric might not be particularly you know, conciliatory. Um, so there was this, but in South Korea, the backlash was just m massive. Um, you know, at first, it was a really interesting time because um, certainly the comfort women themselves reject rejected it based on the fact that it hadn't been approved by them. It hadn't been it hadn't been checked by them. It, there was no consultation with them, um, which is pretty shocking considering um, South Korea's kind of previous agenda and the fact that. They have a fairly well organized Korean Council, which can, you know, you know, speak for them to some extent, rightly or wrongly. So, yeah, the comfort women absolutely rejected it. It was really controversial. And at first, the South Korean government at the time tried to encourage people to accept it. Um, they did a, a bit of work afterwards to try and convince people that they should move on from this issue. But what was really controversial as well about this statement was that um not only had Japan's rhetoric not changed much, and it really hadn't changed much uh, up until 2015, I mean, they were still using kind of the same terminology, like the discourse hadn't moved much. But also, um, one of the things that South Korea agreed in that statement to do was to negotiate the removal of, of a statue, which had become a symbol of justice for comfort women. 
Um, this statue is called the Statue of Peace. If anyone wants to look it up, if you don't know it already, it's it's uh, you might recognize it if you um, if you do look it up. It's it's kind of it's represented. It represents a comfort woman. It's kind of stationed outside of the Japanese um, uh, embassy in Seoul. So it's kind of looking at Japan. And Japan wanted the Korea to negotiate the removal of the statement of the statue, despite the fact that the South Korean government has no role in doing so. I mean, this was erected by, um, you know, a, a non-government group. Um, so this was seen as really controversial. Japan also said um, that this the statue was an insult to Japan's dignity. Um, so it was really, really controversial. It's it's fascinating to, to think about it. Um, successive South Korean governments have now gone back on the statement. So there has been a change in now, um, I think in 2017, um, President Moon went back um, on the agreement set up, the kind of financial agreement that was that was set up for uh, South Korean comfort women and and um, took it, like basically got rid of it. Um, Japan was unhappy with that. Um, Japan has since that time been, uh, you know, the subject of more demands for apologies. So again, the final and irreversible thing didn't, happen um even whilst the south korean government at the time was trying to appeal to people to move on the only thing i can think about is just you know basic diplomatic uh and and you know uh intergovernmental benefits that might come from this but i mean honestly i really i don't know and i haven't read anyone convincingly uh who knows about this either why this happened at this time um it seems to be an outlier in south korean kind of politics um, and yes, there are people who were not included in this statement. Even this very, the statement didn't necessarily talk to uh, South Korean comfort women, but it certainly didn't apply to any comfort women outside of South Korea. Um, it certainly um, didn't apply to also there. You know, there are quite prominent campaigns for justice from um, women who are called Camptown women who are. Um, literally stationed in some cases in in ex comfort stations, um, which have been used by U.S. military bases, you know, since that time. Um, so yeah, there's definitely been, um, you know, a, a you know that that apology was particularly controversial for I think the right reasons, and um, it's not very verbose, right? It's not very deep. It doesn't say much. It doesn't say who they mean by comfort woman. <laughs> Um, but what is done is these two foreign ministers do shake hands, and uh, I suppose that's supposed to be it. God, it's, it's such an interesting example, and I think I think of the idea that you've conveyed that if the Korean government is having to sell this apology to victims, you know, you really do see well, this is this is this is the wrong this is the wrong place to be starting. Absolutely. Um, and also, I suppose it 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 kind of does make me think about when you talked about that sort of issue of audiences as well, that kind of response in Japan, that kind of pushback against that, because it's interesting. I mean, I don't want to say all these things are the same, but it does remind me about the kind of pushback against, for example, decolonizing and anti-colonial discourses that, for example, might be emerging in the context of like the UK at the moment, where, you know, something like the toppling of, you know, Edward Colston's statue, do you know, you know, like it's kind of seen as being kind of moment of restitution in terms of a kind of a Britain's implication in the slavery trade, and then how other elements see that as kind of woke culture gone mad, do you know, I mean, the weakening, the kind of, the kind of emasculation of the kind of, of the state. So I think it, there are kind of maybe overlaps there and kind of interesting in terms of that kind of 
kind of some wider currents in, in kind of political life and, you know, designation of so-called culture wars and how they might also kind of play out in, in the context of, of, um, of apologies. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. And the kind of, the, the kind of complex gender dynamics between victims, between victims and the state, you know, are, are really, really well explored in your book. Um, your second example then, as, as we've mentioned, focuses on the, on the U.S. and how it apologized for the sexualized and abusive treatment of, of prisoners by U.S. military, in, including pretty notoriously a female um, guard called Lindy England um, in the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And at the time, photos were, were leaked and, and, and they were everywhere. They were everywhere in 2004. This was an enormous story. Um, but again, I think that maybe some listeners might might not have been around at the time or may not have kind of been conscious of it. So again, would you mind just filling in some of that background detail for us? Yeah, absolutely. And just to bring just to um to speak to a point you just mentioned there, I think uh it's really interesting to think about the kind of culture wars that we're we're potentially engaged in just now in many in many places in the world, right? But um you know, it's easy to, it's certainly um, worthwhile to point out how the UK is going about this just now. But it's also interesting given the fact that if you look at kind of the political apologies literature, much of the time Japan is kind of seen as an outlier in how it's, uh, in how uh, kind of how much it has not <laughs> responded adequately, right, to to its history. But, um, you know, I think there are definitely, uh, we should be making um comparisons here to other countries uh in how the kind of conservative um kind of backlashes is, is going and i think it, you know basically what i'm trying to say is that japan is not the the only example of this and i think it's a it's becoming more perhaps more worrying but also uh has existed for some time um so yeah I, and when it comes to have a grave yeah absolutely i um yeah basically what happened was um uh, a prison, uh, sorry, uh, a guard at the prison, uh, Abu Ghraib in Iraq, uh, leaked a bunch of, of photographs. Um, I think they were delivered initially to um, to journalist Seymour Hirsch, but they were um, essentially broadcast for the first time in the new in the US um, by uh, sixty Minutes. Right? They they were um, there was a, a huge story about them. These images, um, in some ways, aren't that different to many images. Um, that come out of the context of war, but also the global war on terror more broadly. Like we do have other violent images from different contexts in the global war on terror, but what made them different, I think, was two things. Um, one was that you have women visible in positions of like domination over male victims, right? You have that kind of uh, like gender reversal, which is which was really really controversial and shocking at the time. And that secondly, the images were not just of torture, right? They were of sexualized torture. And this uh, kind of created a, a form of outrage that we hadn't really seen and we haven't necessarily seen since uh, in the context of the global war on terror, right? This was um, based on the fact that the global war on terror was um, conducted in part through a rhetoric of kind of civilizational forces, right? Like good versus evil, um, Bush like famously made the the kind of axis of e evil speech to support this this idea. Um, so it called into question, obviously, um, this this civilizational battle that was supposedly um, going on. Because of course, it made U.S. prison uh, military prison guards look um, look um, absolutely um, you know not just violent but particularly depraved. So 
Um, so yes, there was a lot of discussion about the kind of the nature of the war itself and how the war was was happening. And we, you know, later find out through reports that these um, these images are not like one example in one you know particularly bad prison. They are um, absolutely consistent with lots of torture techniques being used um, by the US at the time. Um, but you know, in other ways, there were there was conservative <laughs> backlash to these to these images to say that you know. Um, for instance, women shouldn't be involved in 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 fighting, right? Women shouldn't be soldiers. Women shouldn't be prison guards. Um, uh, and that the that we can explain the kind of lack of morals, etc., at Abu Ghraib through this idea, right? So there was a lot of uh, backlash in that sense too. So I think it wasn't like a clear cut kind of controversy. Um, and even now, you see like a lot of um, you know, I, I was actually thinking about it the other day because. I'd seen something a couple of weeks ago. It was an article about like the impacts of Abu Ghraib and like the scandal at Abu Ghraib. And the, the kind of number one impact that this article was discussing was um, the fact that supposedly US American lives were more at risk following this, right? So the controversy was often not so much about um, those Iraqi um, victims themselves. And that kind of spoke to, I think, the, the broader um, discourse of, of the global war on terror. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I found this this apology kind of extraordinary. Actually, I kind of I kind of quite baffled by that by by it. And I mean, in some ways, it sort of was an element of kind of enraging kind of by this, by this apology because I suppose what strikes me is that this is occurring in the context of U.S. invasion. Okay, irrespective of whatever about Saddam is saying, this is this is what has occurred, and that at this time there are ongoing questions about the U.S. and it's. It's abandonment of conventional human rights in the name of the so-called war on terror. So this has been a kind of a you know certainly particularly since nine eleven this kind of like progressive kind of abandonment of any certain kind of conventions around human rights. Um, there are questions about its use of waterboarding and other forms of torture along with rendition flights. And yet this this merits the apology. And I think the way you set that up is so so interesting because. It kind of does raise questions about why was this the case? And crucially, who was actually being addressed by this apology? Like, who is the U.S. apologizing to in this context? Um, to the victims who are prisoners, who are suspects in search of, of what? Um, so I thought that your analysis was, was really fascinating in the way that it reflected on the use of apology in a way to kind of underscore the U.S.'s self-image um, as a kind of bastion of democracy and also, I suppose, how the kind of patriarchal and the colonialist ideas that were kind of, again, reinforced in that apology. So I think maybe there's some interesting kind of lines of discussion there that would be great to hear to hear your view on. Sure. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's, they are baffling apologies. And I think actually probably, although most people will have heard about Abu Ghraib, I'm not sure that people know that there were apologies associated with Abu Ghraib necessarily. Um, Maybe maybe they do, but um, I yeah I, I think they are in some ways surprising and in some ways they are just like very cynical. Um, you know the apologies. I mean that is that 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 um, example again of like boundary delineation, right? It's like um, what are we apologizing for and what are we not apologizing for because the war has to continue. And so how do you apologize for like one particular element of of war whilst like not just reaffirming the nature of the war because they had to do that, but also um, continuing to 
to use torture, uh, you know, and and do so in a way that you you you're trying to suggest is legitimate. So, so yeah, um, it is. Abu Ghraib doesn't necessarily um, demonstrate the kind of the excesses of the war, but what it does is it plays into social. Um, societal understandings of what um, what is exceptional and what is uh, you know kind of good military behavior and um yeah so it's precisely because the war has to continue unabated and precisely because for instance bush's career doesn't really get affected by this controversy i mean i suppose rumsfeld's uh, might have more so but because he was kind of had his, had the the finger pointed at him throughout various of the reports but i mean um you know the apologies themselves are very um their 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 reiteration of this kind of securitizing discourse of the war um but they're also as you say like they are absolutely kind of they're making some allusions to victims but they're absolutely not about victims i mean they i'd be surprised if if any of the the victims at the time would have heard these statements i, I just don't think they were designed for that purpose right they there was like i think Condoleezza Rice did go and perhaps Bush did as well did go on tv in Iraq to like say something um but I'd be surprised if any of the you know people who are literally imprisoned are hearing any of this so might have heard so later in response to trials and stuff like that so yeah they're ultimately they're they are very narcissistic apologies they're really about the US and what the US is doing and that and honestly in some ways it sounds at points like they're apologizing to other members of the US military because it sounds like they're saying these people let you down. I'm so sorry because now you might be more at risk. Um, you know the good, the good men and women of our U.S. military are are you know putting their 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 lives on the line every day, and this kind of behavior just um, harms them. So yeah, it's really about the U.S. as a nation. It's about the U.S. as a military, and in some ways that allows them to cast this behavior as like ultimately um, in opposition to the U.S. Uh, identity and military identity. So. Um, yeah, it, it's basically the other like element that I find really interesting about these apologies is um, how do you so like the it's you have to understand these forms of violence that happen alongside the global war on terror is deeply racialized, right? And how do you tra- translate racial racialized coded ideas which manifest in like really um, violent and, and abhorrent behaviors towards Iraqi men but then how do you also translate this through apology and reiterate essentially the same racially coded dynamics and I think that's what the apologies actually do right they they are a different register but they continue to 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 create this dichotomy with which is like civilizational right like which is which we can understand as being racialized so I think that you know this episode of boundary making during war is like it's really it draws the lines of what's acceptable and unacceptable in warfare um and reiterates the idea of us as being a civilizational kind of force it's it's but it's whilst these apologies didn't make a huge amount they weren't necessarily controversial in and of themselves they don't smooth over what happened at abu Ghraib. and i mean we we still talk about abu Ghraib as being like almost the symbol of us neo-colonial racialized uh, abuses uh, in many parts of the world so um, they don't smooth it over enough. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure what would have happened if there had been no apologies, uh, you know, but I'm not sure how much difference they made in the politics of the time, but still there's this kind of moment of boundary making, which I think is really interesting to pay some attention to.
I mean, yeah, it, based on, on what you're saying, that certainly kind of give us a sense of the kind of excitability of the, the kind of apology. But also, I think what you're talking about there is the sort of the kind of drawing attention to an exceptional occurrence, how it kind of renormalizes all those other aspects of war. You know, this is the one that goes too far, but everything else is that's OK and that's acceptable. Um I suppose in the, in, the, in the minutes that we've got left, I, I'd like to talk about, um, I suppose, first of all, I, I think this might be slightly parochial, bringing it all back to the Irish context. But I am conscious that listeners and students and activists in Ireland who will be listening to this podcast might be actually thinking about the kind of the, the value of apology for, for injustices in relation to they've been visited on themselves as members of groups and communities in this country. Um, and so I suppose, what would you say to them about the kind of political value of apology overall? And if and how it should be centred in, in demands for justice and restitution? Yeah, no, I don't think it's parochial at all. And I think it's, um, you know, obviously, I'm doing all these theoretical discussions, but like underlying this is like, is is a, is a normative question about apology and what's the use of apology and like, in some ways, um, I'm I'm almost scared to answer the question, but I I but we mu- we have to talk about it. And I think um so as I said at the beginning, like I've really re-emphasized the fact that I think it's almost like it's not just like a liberal international thing, right? Like it's also it's not just an idea about liberal democracy. It's also like very human to to want to have some kind of recognition for har- par- some kind of past harm. I think you know, there is a, a, a general code whereby, like, though it might take different cultural um, kind of, um, it might, might manifest in different ways in different cultures, but I think ultimately um, most people demand some kind of recognition for harms they've experienced, especially when it comes to political harms. Um, but I do also caution with the idea that I'm not sure, I often, I, I would worry about the ultimate goal being apology as being something um i think that the often i've heard from victims who've been working for apologies for so many years of their lives i think it's it can be also in some ways a bit of a trap right because i'm not sure that the state will ever give you what you want right I, i'd be almost a bit um uh cautious with continually going back to the state to ask for uh, recognition to ask for um you know something because not only will the state always almost always um disappoint us but you know our existence doesn't have to always do we in some ways do ourselves a disservice by constantly reiterating our our uh, relationship to for instance the state or maybe it's you know the church or whatever right like yeah i think that the the demand for apology is hugely beneficial. And I think actually probably what's more beneficial than the apology itself is the discussion, right? The societal discussion that comes up when people are, like one of the things I argue in the book is that the apology might be terrible, but at least if the state gives you something, then there's more to discuss. And I think, you know, the discussions in the media, the platforming of people who might be marginalized, that is probably it's probably enough, right? Like that's probably the part that's the most beneficial for society because at least there's visibility and people can can talk about it. Um, whereas, yeah, I just be cautious with the end goal being um, 
an adequate apology, for instance, right? I mean, I'm thinking also because of um, going back to Cameron's 2010 apology for Bloody Sunday, right? As far as I understand it, there are some people who campaign for that apology who are who are happy with that apology, and some families are deeply unhappy with this apology. And so there's a, it, you know, there's no one thing that victim groups all want to achieve through the apology. And I think it, that, you know, the Bloody Sunday example is a, is a really good example of that, right? Because many of the families campaigning for for uh, full apology and, and justice felt that that justice was done. And others felt that, you know, marches had to continue, protests had to continue. And um, I think, I don't know, that might have caused rifts in, in amongst uh, otherwise very very well-organized group of people who had very similar agendas. And ultimately what everyone wants, right, is recognition and visibility for what they lost. So, yeah, I think, I think that probably the, 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 the closest thing to an answer is about um, doing the campaign work is doing the being visible and speaking um, more so than what the state can ever provide. But that might not be a very satisfying answer. I think it is a satisfying answer in the sense that I think it, it, it kind of maybe reminds us of the risks and kind of limitations of being locked into a kind of a dependency relationship with the state, actually, because I think that's maybe what you're describing, that the sort of political validation cannot come through the state alone. And that, Jimmy, you know, and so I think it is it is a useful answer. And yeah, and obviously there are there are satisfactions that come from it too. So we just can't write it off and dismiss it as nothing. Did we, you know? So it is that maybe cautious engagement with, with, that, with that idea. Um, before we finish up in the, in the maintenance we've got left, um, I'd just like you to talk and tell us a little bit about like where your research is going now. Um, and, and we don't have time to give it the full attention that it deserves, but I, I've read some of your other articles and I think they're really so interesting. And you've been looking, I suppose, at the kind of British military in particular, and you've been looking at how, I suppose, the kind of kind of issues around commemoration and representation of the British military, both in kind of official kind of state-led remembrance processes so like the remembrance of world war one or world war two or like poppy day or all these kind of you know kind of officially sanctioned um, events but also then and also particularly in scotland because it's kind of an interesting dynamic there particularly around the whole kind of quest for, for scottish independence so that kind of complicates that maybe relationship with the british military somewhat and you've been working and kind of publishing with Natalia Danlova around these themes. So because it's interesting, maybe if you'd even sketch out some of the, the kind of lines of inquiry and whether this kind of represents a kind of a break from your kind of research on apology or, or whether there are some continuities. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I've been working with uh, Natalia or Natasha Danlova, um, she uses both names. Um, she's at the University of Aberdeen. She's a senior lecturer there. Um, for some years now and um, hopefully I mean we we recently signed a book contract so hopefully there'll be a book coming out with Edinburgh University Press in the next little while we have to write it first but <laughs> um, and basically this the, this project has been um, about uh, which is led by by Natasha by the way um, is is about the cultural politics of militarization and specifically in Scotland um, so yeah, in some ways it's a it's a strange case study because we're looking at British militarism, but we're looking at it through the lens of Scotland and Scottish politics. Um, and you know, we've looked at it through through various means, um, including war commemoration. Yeah. Um, so we have a paper on that. Um, 
and I know that like this is something that we've been discussing a lot in Ireland over the past few years for sure as well right how does like what does commemoration do and um how should the state how should and, and does the state commemorate um so we've been looking at this and I think whilst it does sound to be different to my work on apologies and it is but um but this work is also really informed by feminist IR by critical military studies and by memory studies also it's something I hadn't really mentioned so um, I think you know whilst these examples are about our understanding of the past they're very much about contemporary politics and um, apologies are they're they're really about um, how we in, in in contemporary politics understand our past and and so are so is commemoration you know um, it has this commemoration is interesting for that right it has this very like uh, ritualistic um, often, especially in the UK, right, very um, like kind of religious seeming, uh, ritualistic um, kind of historic uh, way of, of of operating, which is seen to, which I think is is in part um, means that we don't really critique it, <laughs> but it's um, but also this this historic idea about commemoration is also really actually quite recently manufactured, so it's kind of um, it's kind of performing this historical. Um, this historic identity um and yeah in the context of um scottish um uh, kind of uh, or like the failed 2014 um scottish independence referendum um so we're kind of looking at um commemorative services since that time and also at the time was unfolding brexit so we were kind of looking at um how how gender operates how um, ideas about kind of military and and heroism are operating in kind of maybe in line with things like martial race. This idea of Scots being kind of naturally born warriors, how this is uh, kind of operating through kind of cultural events. So whilst we're not really so, we, we haven't been looking directly at the military. We've been looking at how society imagines the military to have functioned. Right, where how society makes meaning about war, and that's I think that's really. An, been an interesting project because it really um, explodes our ideas of like society versus the military um, and often we found that some of the most um, controversial and deeply held kind of stereotypes about war are, are imagined by society they're not put in place by the military so that's one of the things that we find um, we're constantly up against like we're trying to convince people that no the military didn't tell people to do this like people just did this because this is what they culturally imagine um, to be war meaning making you know Yeah, I mean, it's 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 incredibly interesting. And I think you're right. There has been a sort of an ongoing set of conflicting conversations about commemoration in this country, what can or can't be commemorated, and also perhaps even about sort of like, you know, the, the relationship to, for example, the British military and how that's commemorated here. It's discovered there, so there are many specific resonances there. Um, and I suppose, um, just on maybe that's a very last point, I, I also thought it was really interesting how you writing about how kind of like the kind of attempts to to represent and make sense of diversity within the military. And particularly like the presence of women within the kind of soldiering, but also a kind of more recently a kind of LGBTQ people. And again, kind of probably animated by kind of liberal ideas around diversity and inclusivity and, you know, and all of those. But again, you kind of raise other questions about that. Like, where does it go? And what way our class and what way our gender and what way our colonialism 
And to what extent are they opened up or are they silenced within this kind of, within these representations? Um, so again, I think, I mean, I think that maybe raises questions, like really interesting questions about like contemporary militarization and how it tries to feed off or to integrate itself with these wider questions of equality. I mean, that's a really big question. Maybe something you would want to say about that just very briefly or even just like what you've been doing. But I think, I think it's really interesting work. Thank you. Um, yeah, I again, like, uh, like Natasha and I have not been um, kind of engaging with, for instance, um, directly military kind of inclusion policy, but we're looking. Um, one of our papers looks at uh, a kind of um, a very particular case study, which is um, uh, a kind of set of performances which happen every year at the at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but which is hosted by the British military. Um, this, this, uh, so it's not the military creating um, creating dramas, but it is the military hosting dramas um, written by artists. So we're looking at how artists imagine, um, for instance, LGBTQ plus inclusion in the military, for as one example. Um, and yeah, it, we we I think like generally we tend to find that whilst there's this, I think there's a, there's a general tendency for especially feminist approaches to to want to believe that visibility is is not just feminist but queer approaches too right the visibility is kind of a um the way to tackle um like stereotypes and uh, discrimination but um often we find it to be much more complex and um the visibilities themselves are just so highly contested that um we feel the need to you know just go and more like provide more depth uh you know the end goal i don't think should only be visibility so right like um, and I think Judith Butler helps us in that, right? They're they're arguing that um, visibility is continuously um, kind of uh, uh, kind of policed, right? Not policed, but kind of um, maintained in various ways uh, discursively. So, so yeah, we look at that. Um, I think this is like just to go back to Ireland as well. This is really important. This, these are really important debates in Ireland too, right? Like we have a recent really shocking report about. Um, you know, women's experience in the defence force, and um, I right now have a PhD student working on this topic. So I hope um, you know. Th I think there's a lot more to be said about this uh, because, in for instance, critical military studies, we have lots and lots of literature on many. Um, to be honest, mostly global north case studies, um, and um, but we don't have that much on Ireland yet. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting debate to to start to be had, uh, maybe in more depth in Ireland too. But um, Certainly, yeah, in, in the UK, there's a lot of literature now uh, dealing with um, with inclusion policies and, and militarism. And, you know, this is an age old feminist debate. You know, is it, is it about right to fight or is it about um, opposing militarism more broadly? And I think probably like the debate itself is more complex than that. And I think um, probably neither of these two sides is, is fully adequate. But uh, we also have a recent apology in the UK for, um, you know, for LGBT plus Q plus veterans who were um, discriminated against, who were, um, you know, um, ousted from their military careers due to their sexuality. And this is a, a really, this is going to be a really interesting case as well to look at maybe how apology intersects with um, military inclusion there. So um, I hope to, to, to think more about that in, in, in the next few months. 
Wow, yeah. I mean, it certainly runs up against lots of really fascinating debates about the politics of diversity, the politics of inclusion, politics of representation, you know, you know the kinds of, not to mention, like, what are debates about militarization and, and, and where we position ourselves in relation to that. But but as well, I, I certainly was when I was reading your articles, thinking about the Women of Honor case, you know, you know, and how that would certainly be something that, you know, it could be really like illustrative, you know, of, of some of the kind of tensions that you're describing. Emma, it's been an absolute pleasure. Been a fantastic guest. I've so enjoyed talking about um, talking about these issues with you, and I felt like I really learned from from your um, from your discussion. Maybe when you write the second book, there might you might be back again if Muskel is still plowing along, and we might have another conversation then. But I want to just thank you so much for for coming along. It, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and yeah, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you um, about all of this. So thank you so much for, for engaging with me in this. And um, yeah, I hope Musical continues as, as, as you are because you're producing some amazing work. <laughs>